Hope all, everybody's doing well this morning. You look good. How many kids do we have in the place this morning? Kids. All right, there you go. I see you all. All right, how many of the kids in the place have seen this box up here and asked some questions? Who's curious? Yeah, okay. So I need one volunteer to come up and check out this box. Ransom, you want to do it? Your your hand was straight up. I know that you are not shy, so come on. All right, Ram Man, come here. So what is this? All right, hang on, hang on. I want you to hold the mic, okay? This is a lot of responsibility. Can you handle it? All right. What, What is this? Well, from what I can see, it's a box with wrapping paper on it. <laughs> okay, that is true. Let's, let's go a little bit deeper. Because it has wrapping paper, what does it probably mean? Uh, that it's a present. Oh, okay. All right, good. Yeah, I think it is a present. That is true. Do you like presents? Yes. How much? A lot. Why? Of course. Uh, because they're usually things I like, and they're fun things. Yeah, they're fun. How do you feel about what's inside of there? I mean, I'm very curious about what's inside of there. Okay, all right. What do you hope is in there? Well, something I like. Say what? Something I like. Oh, something you like? I I hope so, too. All right. So how would you figure out what's inside of there? By opening it. uh, Yes. What are other ways there, Ransom? All right. Let's uh, let's pick it up and let's look. Give it a shake. Well. Is it heavy? Yes. Yeah? Okay. What do you... Any any thoughts? Any guesses? Uh, no, because a lot of things are heavy. (laughs) Yeah? What is the worst part about presents? Uh, like the suspense. Oh, the suspense. <laughs> That's right. Are you are you pretty suspenseful right now? Like you feeling it? Yes. Do you want to open it up? Yes. All right, go for it. Now, Ram Man, can you try and read that for me? I know that you can read because it's pretty much what you do when you come to my house. All right, pull it up, pick it up, and I want you to read it to your friends. Dear friend, my present to every child in this room is one Blow pop. Blow pop, but you have to wait until the end of the service. Oh, now, what's the worst part about waiting? You want what happens at the end, and, and like. Yeah, you, you, you're, you, it's just waiting, right? That's the worst part about waiting, yeah. is waiting, right? All right, and then open it up, what does it say? I promise, Mr. Trey. Okay, all right, so my name, so I promise, okay? I promise, everyone's gonna get a blow pop at the end of the service. I promise you that, okay? Okay. Cool, thanks Ray, man. Everyone give Ransom a round of applause here. You don't get it yet, man. You don't get it yet. <laughs> he says, relax, I know that. <laughs> 
So this morning, we are going to be talking about what it feels like to wait for something really good. Really good. That's what we're going to be waiting about, talking about this morning. Um, My name is Trey. I am one of the elders here. And um, the thing is about that is, is the thing that ups the ante to that is I said I promise and I wrote my name. And something that I think is so valuable is for us to remember that when we write our name, when we, when, we, when we say what we promise something, that we follow through with it. And we have a God that does that. We have a God that, that he's trusted because his word says something. And when he says something, he always follows through with it. So I immediately ran to the front of the stage last service because I was like, I cannot forget because that's the whole part of this lesson. So I ran up there and so yes, children, you will all get a blow pop and I'm very excited for you to get that. But I want you to also remember this morning is that you are a part of a grander story, that you are called to be fully redeemed characters in it and you are to be a model of what it looks like to be transformed in Jesus. So morning, we are going to be starting a new series. We were just recently on an older series. Uh, uh, It was a four-part series that Chris was doing before he left for his sabbatical. And it was on uh, a mini-series on what is the church. And last week, we ended that as the church as the body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So when we were talking about the past four, the past four uh, 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 messages that we had in that series, it was really about the structure of the church. And we ended on this idea of the body, but this summer we're gonna be looking at the book of Ephesians. And this is where, where that, that last series was looking at structure. We're really going to be talking about the glue that makes all of the church be what it's intended to be. And that glue is what does it mean to be in Christ? So if there's a phrase over the summer as we're going through this series, the thing that I hope that you hear is this phrase of in Christ, because out of all of Paul's letters... This one, by far, uses in Christ more than any other of the letters and uses it almost about 22 times, which is double the amount than any of his letters. And whenever you see that type of repetition, we know that it's, it's, it's the author trying to repeat a point. So the focus of Ephesians is this, what does the family of God look like? What does it mean to be in Christ? And that's what we're going to be exploring a lot this morning about what that phrase means as we go through these first 14 verses. But before we go, let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for who you are. and Thank you that you unite all of us in Christ. Amen. So I do have the opportunity of opening up this series. So we have to kind of deep, dive deep a little bit into the context of this book, because I think Paul is very, being very specific about writing this particular letter with a lot of context in mind. So the author, as I mentioned, is Paul. Paul is one of uh, the, he's the most prolific writer of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was written by Paul of what we have. 
Uh, he uh, was a Pharisee, which was somebody who, who was basically like a, an ancient times uh, Jewish lawyer that studied the law. He was also of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was this, he basically like, he was like the most, like if you were going to put him up as a pedestal of what was an example of the perfect Jew, this would be Paul. But he also was known for doing some pretty heinous things with the church. And because of that, God also redeemed his story in a pretty miraculous way where he came to him in a vision and, and a 50-foot Jesus like appears in front of him and his eyes, he goes blind and scales fall from his eyes and the person who comes to actually uh, bring him to faith is even just worried about it because he's worried that, that he's gonna do bad things to him. But Paul has this amazing, miraculous story and Paul even talks about that later inside of this book. But because of this, he comes from the Jewish story. And he has a specific calling of going out into the nations and into meeting Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, and telling them this amazing truth that Jesus is here. That the hope of the world has been born and has died and has risen and has now ascended. And because of that, we can live the life that God always intended us for live, to live. And he's writing this in time of being in prison because this story that, that he is telling is a very hard story for a lot of people. They don't like it. He gets in a lot of trouble for it. A lot of people get in a lot of trouble for it. But the truth is, is he's writing this from jail. And he's writing to these churches that he helped plant. He's writing to people that he knows it's his friends, it's the people who, who I can even imagine that some of these people are some of the people that maybe even shouldered him out of communities after being hurt by other people. He, he, they, they, they know his wounds, they know who he is. So he's writing in a way that he just is hopeful that if he does get out of jail, he can come visit them, but what if he doesn't? So he starts off this book and he says to the church of Ephesus is what we have written, but actually in the earliest manuscripts, that word Ephesus is omitted because um, the, the epistles, a type of, it's actually a type of writing um, that was an ancient type of writing. It was, it was done in letter form. And there was always, uh, for a lot of these types of letters, they would, they would actually omit a, the, the audience so that that letter could be read in different places. So uh, where we know that he's writing to the church of Ephesus, he's actually writing to all of Asia, the province of Asia. So you would see that, the, that these different cities, they would, they would get to that blank portion in the first verse and actually, actually put in their name, whoever was reading it out loud. It was a circular letter. And because of that, this audience that he's talking to has a lot of, it's a more generalized audience. It's not exactly specific to that particular church, but rather to the entire province. So because of that, there's a lot of stuff that we can pull from this that are, is pretty generalized to, to this whole ge geographic area, which one I would say is one of the, in, in the ancient worlds, if we were gonna draw a correlation here, we would actually say is very much like our own. Ephesus in particular in this part of the world was all about trade and, and business. It was, it was a big mixture between different cultures. And because of that, there's a lot of just background context and culture that's going on here. 
But Paul does have a specific audience inside of this region to talk to, and it is two groups of people. And we get to see Paul interacting with these people in Acts 19, 8 through 10. And he, being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which was the first terminology for uh, the, the Christian faith, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we have these two people. We have, we have the Greeks being all of the Greco-Roman people that, that come from this particular area. And then we also have the Jews being the people who know the story of God. And when you put these two individual groups together, some really big questions start to occur. And Paul is trying to sort through this. And what we know is all through all of Paul's writings, the hardest question is, is how do these two groups work together and be the new bride of Christ that he has created in the church? And much of Paul's writing is about this. So in Ephesians specifically, the first three chapters are going to be about what are, what are our, our, our spiritual privileges? He's going to be addressing specifically about how we have inherited what we have inherited in Christ. And then what are those implications? One of my favorite verses of, uh, so, so many of the verses in, in Ephesians are my favorite, but one of them is that we are God's craftsmanship. And not just the Jewish faith, but all of humanity, those who are in Christ are his craftsmanship. And I can geek out on that word craftsmanship and how it's, how it's connected to creativity and, and all this sort of thing. But the most beautiful part about all of this is that he is setting up this stage for us to be one family in Christ. In the back half of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at the practical consequences of knowing the fact if we are all one body in Christ, then how is it that we then act? Because Paul's goal of this particular book is to address divisive arguments between Jews and Greeks in the early church pertaining to inheritance and identity being unified in God's people. And this is why the phrase in Christ will be so important for us. Of the 22 times it is mentioned, 10 of those 22s are just found in chapter one. Paul is really trying to hammer this home. Because what he wants you to do is to also pick up on all of this familial type language that we are sons and daughters, that we are adopted and that we, we are husbands and wives and that we act as a full household, that we are a family. We are to portray God's people as a family united under the head of Christ, transcending the ways the world constructs any form of identity and culture. You see, this book was written to create an identity of what the kingdom of God looks like with Jesus as the head. So because of that, in our time right now, there's so many questions about whether it be race, culture, political correctness, all of these things. This book is such a vital book to sort through. What does it look like for us as a church to be God's holy people? 
That in moments of confusion, we can go back to a text and know the answers to questions like, who is Christ? What is the mission of the church? Where do we find hope? How do we see one another? How do we understand marriage and parenting? How should we act as believers? And what is our ultimate mission in Christ? This book is one of the most clear places in scripture for us to define the, the identity of God's people. So we're gonna start in verses one and two. You can open there. If you don't know where Ephesians is, I have a little fun little way of remembering it. It's Great Electric Power Company. So you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They're these really small books. It's probably about like, you know, halfway in the New Testament or so. Um, You can flip through there. But we also have it on the screens. So he starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we start off with our first in him. And we have to remember, why is that context there? Because he wants you to understand that he is writing to the saints who are in and faithful in Christ. You have these Jews and Greeks on, on both sides. And see, what's interesting too is, is as Paul was starting to kind of like put all of this out, he actually was, was told that maybe you're, are you creating a new religion? Because for a lot of people, they're like, I don't understand, is this kind of like a mixture between things? And what Paul is trying to get to, in, particularly in this, this passage right here, is like, no, 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 you have to hear me. There are two major strands in the Jewish faith that are now fully realized in Christ. The first one is the new Exodus, and Exodus is that story of, of God redeeming his people by bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and, 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 and bringing them into the full promise and giving them a way in which to become holy. That's the first strand. And the second strand was, is that he was, they were given that law in order, in order to then be atoned for their sins, where, where the things that, that made that, that, that ultimately failed in the, in the, the human project, these, the sin that we had and inherited through Adam, that there would be a way out of that. And it was the law at that time. But what Paul is trying to say is there is a new exodus. There is a new act of redemption that has happened and it is one that has been promised and it has been promised through the Messiah, the Christ who has come and in him through his death, through the exodus that he has created for us, we have now, can now fully realize our atonement where we have been forgiven and we finally have a means to deal with sin in our lives and it's not one that you can do It's only what he can do through you if you choose to believe in him. That Jesus is the king and priest who we are redeemed and forgiven in. So because of that, we will will work through these four in hymns. The first one is in him, we have been chosen, adopted. In him, we have been redeemed. And in him, we have been given our inheritance. And lastly, in him, we have been marked by the spirit for the promise of our full inheritance. You see, Paul is synthesizing how the narrative of the Old Testament have now all come into focus on Christ Jesus and has been fully realized in him. Now we're going to dive into verses three through 14. And, and for me, like I, like, 
I didn't really love like grammar until I got to, uh, I went to seminary and then I started like kind of geeking out on it because I never really understood grammar. I, I, I'm, I'm very much a visual person. So like when I read things, like I need someone to like read it to me or I need to be able to hear it or I need to be able to work it out. And when I read this text, particularly in the ESV, I feel like, oh my gosh, I like, it's just like all these words are all jumbled together and it's kind of confusing. Don't worry, you're not alone. I, I, am, I, I am that. Part of the reason why, is because verses three through 14 in the original Greek is actually one long run-on sentence. I like to study in a, a way of like propos, uh, looking at propositions, um, uh, prepositions, and, and I use this outline to be able to go through it. And it, literally this whole thing just keeps going off to the right of all the ideas because they're all building on top of each other. So we're gonna do our best to work through this, but know that like sometimes, yeah, the Bible, it's, it's written from an ancient language and, and that is part of the work of being good disciples is to be equipped on how to read and study in the text. But it's also to be at a point of being like, man, I don't know, I, I need some help working it out. And that's the reason why in community, we have the opportunity to work that out and to ask the question, what is God trying to say here? So it does seem a little jumbled, but we're gonna break it down into a couple sections. So verses three through six, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we have two sections within these three. The first one is this idea that God shows us to be, his, to be holy. And the reason being is, is because what holiness means is to be set apart, to be like God, to be fully made into what God told and intended for us. But what we know is that because sin entered into the equation, we could not be holy. But God provided a way through his people, through his law, in order, for, in order for the Jewish nation to find that holiness and ultimately in Christ to find holiness in his resurrection, in his atonement of our sins. And that we have been chosen to be holy. But we've also been chosen to be his people in the same way that Abraham's people was, was chosen to be his people in the same way that, that even earlier to that, that Adam and Eve from the very beginning, God intended for a people to be a part of his amazing creation. And in that, there is a word that, 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 that's mentioned here is predestines or, or prozeo, which is used six times in the New Testament. And it refers to this idea of God's plan that is, that is intended, it is predetermined that, that because God is an eternal God and he has ordained everything before time, that all things have been planned by him, including those of us who are found in faith. So I'm going to get nerdy for a minute because some of us like to get nerdy. So this, this, this thing is, is around unconditional election. Now, for those of us that, that get this idea of like Calvinism, you start to say, oh, well, yeah, the, the, that's the you in this idea of tulip, a way to remember what Calvinism is. And what that means is unconditional election is, is that our election, our chosenness to be saved, it's because God chose us before the foundations of the world that he purchased us redemption at the cross and then gives us spiritual life through irresistible grace and brings us to faith. What does this mean? Matt Chandler makes this joke a lot as he says, well, you're here, so I guess it's a matter of time. 
In other words, that when we, that there is a moment in time when God chose for us to hear the gospel from the beginning of time. And that is a deep belief that we have. Now, all that said, there's some practical implications of predestination and election inside of this particular text. And there's so much to unpack about that with those two words. And, and at the same time, for some people, that even may be even just some trigger words that have often sharply divided faith communities and conversations. What do you mean God intended some people to be saved and some don't? And hear me, that's complicated. And there's places to talk about that and to work through the theology of that. And, and just focusing on that one microcosm can sometimes cause a lot of really bad hurt or, or it could just be unsure of what that means. So there's places to talk about that, but that is not Paul's intention here. And I don't wanna downplay it, but that's not the intention here. Because what Paul's really trying to do here is to say, hey, look, people, Jews and Greeks were always intended to be a part of this. It wasn't just for the Jews. But one thing that I think is really important for us to hear in this, that I, I often find that with the conversation of predestination that, that, that just doesn't come up, is this, you don't save people. You don't. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we share the gospel, we can trust in the fact that we are not the ones actually doing any saving work here. In fact, we can step out in faith knowing the fact, because, you know, at Life Group, where we do our mid-sized groups, where we gather as families and all that sort of thing, and it's great. At the end, we ask this question, when was the last time you shared the gospel or how did you share the gospel this week? And sometimes it's crickets, but sometimes we, some people will talk about it in a way. And, and one of the two fears that I hear that most people are, are worried about is first just about being socially ostracized. And here's the truth, that God did call us to be holy and set apart. Our message is very different than the world. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how people call us crazy. And if you really think about it, what we believe is pretty crazy. But the truth is, is, God's called us to share that message and to proclaim it. But at the same time, Paul, uh, I mean, at the same time, there's another fear that I hear a lot, and that is one of getting it right. The fear of getting it right. What if I tell the gospel in the wrong way? The disciples asked this question too. And, and in Luke 12, 11 through 12, Jesus says to them, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You have to remember the idea of election and, and is, is just one of 10 steps in the order of salvation. In each one of those steps, not a single one of them has to do with you. You are just to be an ambassador of Christ, sharing the news that you know of. And the best way that you can tell that is to share how God's transformed your life. And again, the real point of this passage is about the chosenness of both Jews and Greeks, not necessarily to unpack a huge doctrine here. Verses seven through 10. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's seven through 10, it's really talking about that in Christ we have been redeemed. 
Now, for those of you who know me, you, you know this about me. And for those of you who kind of know me, you, you probably won't be surprised because I am pretty nerdy and geeky. But I do play a certain tabletop role-playing game from time to time. Yep, me and some lady, um, not ladies, no, actually no one at our table is a lady right now, but uh, me and some late 30s to older 40s-somethings men um, have gathered for years to roll some dice, speak in silly voices, and defeat monsters and level up our modifiers. Yes, I love playing Dungeons & Dragons. I just think it's the most fun game there is. Now, why? I love the story. I love stories. I love being a part, and, and I love reading, I love, I, love, I love movies and all that sort of thing. And, and yeah, the thing is, is that when you first onboard into this game, the thing that you're most excited about are the epic stories, because everyone wants to be in Lord of the Rings and they want to do all of that. But here's the real reason why I love playing this game, is because I love to see the redemption of characters. You always start with like this epic type of character in this game, where you're like, you know, you're going to be this like, awesome like fighter that's like just amazing you have this cool like magical sword and it's so much fun but the truth is is when you really dive deep and you play for a long time what you realize is that the best characters are the ones with the greatest flaws because it's in those flaws that their stories actually become really powerful the more you play, the more you realize that these flawed stories and characters are lost in a world and now have been plunged into a story that they have zero control over and yet they find their full purpose in. Their quest isn't about the plot, it's about being redeemed. Life at some level, I feel like, is a giant Dungeons and Dragons game for me because we are in light of this story that is much bigger than we are that we have no control in, that we are so flawed, but and yet we have an amazing God who wants to help us find our purpose and to find the truth that Jesus is the one who has brought to us to an amazing, beautiful um, uh, transformation of heart and in grace. And so because of that, oh, then there's no wonder I, I love this verse, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. I mean, you can't get more Dungeons and Dragons than that. And transformed, or transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have been redeemed. Redeemed doesn't mean that we are still the same. It literally means that you have been moved from one kingdom to the next, that you are redeemed. You have been saved. Your life is now different. We're no longer handcuffed by our trespasses. We no longer have to feel the guilt and shame of sin. We are no longer identified by our flaws, but we recognize that in them we find our greatest strengths because in our flaws, Christ has to be our bigger victor and king. So for what purpose though? Well, it's, it's just that. That has a plan to, to, to unite all things to him, which is another bone that I have to pick with sometimes this, this passage being so much about election and predestination is that it misses some of the greatest points. That it's not just that we are saved for our own purposes, but we are saved 
also to be a part of a new creation and a new heavens here on earth. That God's ultimate goal, yes, is to save you and to help you find that you have freedom from your sin, but he also wants us to know is there is going to be a day when there is no more death, where there will be no more tears. There will be a day where everything is different, that we will be here on earth, but we will see it clearly that all of a sudden now we're gonna be living in a place that we will no longer die, but we will stand and become the fullness of the church standing in his amazing, beautiful glory, and we will be praising his name forever. That this is the story that he is trying to tell these two people who, who are trying to fight back and forth about who's right. And what he wants to say is like, here's the thing. They will not know Jesus if you argue about what was first. They will not know they, 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 that, that who Jesus is if you're just full of fighting amongst each other. They will not know Jesus if you bicker over the things of this world and the things that we can't understand. He is calling us to telling a broader story that we're all part of and have all been a part of from the beginning of time. And that is to be redeemed in Christ. The force that moves, redemption is this force that moves us from one world into the next and it's evidenced by the powerful bond we share in Christ's transformative work of grace in our lives. Verses 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, you, oh, sorry, that's where I'm gonna stop. Yep, hope of his glory. Now, inheritance, this would have been another word that was a little bit of a trigger for, for uh, uh, the, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish people here. Because the idea of inheritance, they know what that means. They know the things that were promised to them. In Genesis 28, 13 through 15, Jacob is told by God, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give, you, give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So when Jews hear this word of inheritance, they, they, they are reminded of their chosenness. But I'm sure that this also this promise and being associated with the Gentiles would conjure up for in them some, some jealousy because for thousands of years, for thousands of, of years, they were the ones that were chosen to receive the promise. They were the ones who had to endure the desert. They were the ones who went into captivity. They were the ones who stayed the remnant. And many of them would feel this feeling that they were the ones who put in the work. So this jealousy, certainly from a human perspective, is at, at least at some level we can empathize and understand. But we have to remember that God always promised that, that, that the reason why they were given this story was to be a blessing to the nations. In the original Abrahamic covenant that was made in Genesis 12, one through three, uh, God says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
And I have a unique idea of inheritance just because uh, my, my family is made up of, I, I have one son that's biological and two sons that are adopted. And the thing is, is when I think about just idea of like giving them any, my two adopted sons, any less is just unfathomable to me. To choose to love them differently would be unfathomable to me. Even down to the point that I first saw my two sons' pictures, I knew I would give them everything. And yet in this context, there's this jealousy over it. And Paul is trying to say, no, 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 no. Our father gives the inheritance to all who are in Christ. So lastly, we get to this verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we started this sermon with, with this box and, and this idea of like, there's a present in here, but it's one that, that you know about, but it's not fully fulfilled yet. And Lauren, my wife, even thought she was super clever, that blow pops, you know, you, you, you get the sucker at first and then you get the inside. You know, I was like, okay, we're taking this metaphor really, really deep. But all that said, the truth is, 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 is that we, we have been given a promise that certainly we have to wait for but at the same time, we have an expectant hope that we're excited about, which we're going to be talking a lot what that hope looks like. What does it mean to be called to a hope? But at the same time, God says that he gave us the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. And that word guarantee is actually a legal word around signing his name, that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a promise of to know that he will fulfill what he has said that he would. And we live in the now and not yet. We live in a time where we can live out as, as faithful people. What does it mean to be in Christ where we, we, can, we can live without guilt and shame? We can live with the understanding that our sin has been paid for, but we also know that we will live forever in, in what God is doing, but also that God is also going to recreate this whole world. And it is because of the Holy Spirit he gives us this guarantee. So what does this mean for you? And we're gonna wrap up here. Well, first it's this. If there's one thing that God, I mean, that Paul specifically says about us is that we are the praise of God's glory. That the church, not you, okay? Not you, not you, Amanda, not you, not you, Jonathan. Like, no, you, the church, are the praise of God's glory. That if he says anything that he holds up next to his son, and his son is the head of this church, which we'll talk about more next week, but like, you are the praise of his glory. The children of God, and like a good father, he does take pride in you. And in Christ, he is, you have been chosen to receive the inheritance, which, which is Christ himself. So being a child of God should deeply impact your identity. If you are in faith, and you, 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 should, you should exhibit the fruits of the Spirit that are found in Galatians. I know that sometimes we can talk about the things that we own like, oh, I have an anger problem. Okay, well, sometimes we can say that and just like gloss over that. But in faith, like, no, 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 no. Like we gotta deal with that anger problem because that is not gentleness. And we have to submit before the Lord on how to work through that. And we work through with it in community. Uh, our marriage is not like, you know, the most best. 
Well, the thing is, is like, are you submitting to one another? Like, 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 like Ephesians will talk about later. Like, we are not called to be mediocre. We are actually called to be examples of what does it look like to be a fully redeemed people here on earth and to allow God to transform us. One of the things that I think is so confusing sometimes is that people think that just because you come to faith, it's finished. But it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of finding a full and free life. Two more points and then we'll transition. You have been given an inheritance hoped for for thousands of years. Because the fact that I think Bibles are not only so easily accessible or on our phones or whatever, we forget that this message was one that was promised for for thousands of years. And it is a gift. And because of that, we should act like it. And we should be assured by it and we should live by it and we should share it. And the best way that we do that is we actually live as agents of redemption as being a larger part of his story. So how do you spend your time? One of my things, if you wanna know how the gospel is, is, is interacting with your life, look at your calendar and ask the question, where is the gospel in it? Where do you spend time visiting with God? Where do you spend time in community? Where do you, where do you invest? What do you prioritize? Thinking about towards the fall, as you're going through the summer, there's gonna be some classes that you can take. There's gonna be opportunities to be invested in the community through service and all sorts of things. We invite you to jump in. Not because like we need you, but because it's a part of being a part of the community of God is giving to one another. So, our inheritance is found in the glory of Christ given to us through his death and resurrection. And every week we get to be a part of one of the most amazing sacraments of being in Christ, which is communion. Communion is about coming together. It's about celebrating what does it mean to be in Christ. It is the table that is open to anyone who is in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or you're Greek. Paul would say we gather around this to remember that night what Jesus did and that day where he was on the cross and then that day that he was put into a tomb and then that day when all of a sudden he walked out of it and then ascended to the right hand of the Father and still reigns to this moment. And that's what we do when we remember this. So we're gonna move into our communion liturgy here. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior, Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us his, this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. At his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So therefore, this morning, we proclaim together as a church in faith, signed and sealed in this sacrament, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord, our God, send your Holy Spirit so this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.